1: Good morning and welcome back to the New Books in Eastern European Studies podcast. I'm your host, Piotr Krasicki, professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. I am very pleased to welcome as my guest today, Dr. Anat Plocker. She teaches at the School of General Studies at Stockton University, specializing in modern European history. She received her PhD in history from Stanford University and had been a fellow at Yale University and the University of Haifa. Her work on Communist Poland has appeared in English, Polish, and Hebrew. And Dr. Plocker is the author of the forthcoming book from Indiana University Press, The Expulsion of Jews from Communist Poland. Uh, It is a wonderful book, and I am delighted to have the chance to discuss it with her. Dr. Plocker, welcome to the program.
0: Um, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on um, to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Fantastic. Thank you again. And let's get right into it. So the first question I'm going to ask you is one that I always ask at the start of conversations. I think it's a a new books network standard. What brought you to the subject matter of your book?
0: So the book is, first of all, um, comes from the my own personal family history. My maternal grandparents, my mother, my her parents, my uncle all uh, immigrated were forced to immigrate out of Poland in the spring of 1968. Uh, so it is, first of all, a family history. My grandfather had been one of the uh, minority within the minority of Polish Jews at the time who remained in Poland after the war. Uh who was a he was an Yiddish writer, an Yiddish speaker, an activist in the Jewish uh, cultural organization, the Teska He was uh, he wrote for the Yiddish newspaper in Warsaw. So he was part of, of these, this tiny group of people within the Jewish minority that was both very culturally Jewish and committed uh, to various degrees to the communist project, right? So they had this uh, impossible, right, hybrid identity of being both Polish, very Polish, but also very um, Jewish. At the same time, an identity that really comes under attack um as, as I show in the book in in nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight. So my this is first of all a, a family story and I grew up around these around Polish Jewish emigres, right? My the social circle of my parents, my father had also been an immigrant from Poland. He came as a teenager with his family in the late uh, 1950s, also as a result of communist policies. So I really grew up around the story, around these people who spread all over the world, uh, who left Poland in in the 60s, around some of them had been um, dissidents. So as I said, first of all, this is a story that comes from my own history. And I was interested in asking, you know, how does a state operate, right? How does it uh, work uh, against its own citizens, right? What, at what moment does the state turn against the citizens, why? and how does it work in in sort of the mid and high level of of officials right of people of the bureaucrats and the police and all of the everyday operations of how a state turns against its own citizens and i was and also growing up in in israel right the other aspect that led me to this project you are really living this these, this question you're living in a state that grapples with questions of citizenship, of nationalism, of who uh, belongs to the state. Uh, how does a state treat citizens that they don't really want in their state? So I was at, I was sort of, uh, grew up also in a place that asked a lot of similar questions to this project, right, of the relationship between state, citizenship, um, ethnicity, all of these questions. And also someone who Grew up right in Israel, but with in this uh, around all of of these people from Poland, uh, right? I was also able to see how the relationship between sort of Polish uh, modern Polish and modern Jewish nationalism that both come from are uh, born in the same geographical place, come from the same. Uh, or origins in, in many ways, same intellectual circles. So there's a lot of relationship between Jewish nationalism and Jewish national thinking, Zionism and Polish national thinking. So they were all questions that I sort of grew up around and, and I try to think about in the book as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. All of these are very clearly central, and in part also, I think the. So, we, if we look at nationalism, we look at civic identity, citizenship, sovereignty, uh, the state capacity to regulate any of these. In the Polish context. I almost wonder about going back to the partition era or looking forward to the 21st century. There, You, make, you start very clearly in the book by saying that you see a lot of your story today. And we'll talk more about that later. But I'm curious, what was it that led you to zero in specifically on the years 1967 to 68, as opposed to telling, let's say, a longer story uh, where you would go into the 1930s or the 1890s, national democracy, etc.? cetera?
0: Um, I think I wanted to tell this specific um story also of the, the, how the communist uh, regime operates. I wanted to tell the story of how a communist state operates. I did not just want to tell the story of the state and the citizens. I wanted to focus in on uh, this specific period and this specific period of, of national communism. Of communism that takes uh, that that takes on itself or 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 is reshaped with nationalist symbols with nationalist narratives with uh, uh, with nationalist discourse right so I wanted to to zero in on a story about uh, the operation also of the communist state and this is a story of how the communist state uh, conceptualizes and creates crisis around Um, Jews in Poland in 1967, 1968, a moment that I wanted um, um, to zero in on and not tell uh, the whole story of the relationship between the state and the Jews
1: in Poland. Uh, It's Difficult to avoid race and racism in the conversation about nationality and national identity and the weaponization of nationalism by the regime that is so central in your story. How central in your mind uh, is race here? Is it a category that's useful or does it mm, obscure maybe some of the dynamics?
0: Um, that's, a, that's a very good um, question here, and I think I want to start to answer it by first of all maybe saying a few words about what uh, uh, how the book analyzes actually the, the events and what happens in 60, 768, and maybe from that uh, we'll get an answer to, to what degree race and racism is, is helpful in understanding this. So, so the book, is, is as I said, tells the story of how uh, the communist regime operates and, and what it does in 67-68. And, uh, and, and just to begin with the basic facts, right? So in, in March 1968, the communist regime in Poland launches, following student demonstration launches, uh, campaign against Jews, marginalizing them and eventually expelling uh, pre- prominent Jews from Poland. Uh, the numbers, of course, are contested between fifteen thousand to eighteen thousand Jews leave Poland during this period. Many of them, as I said, prominent intellectual cultural figures. So there's a big hit, uh, uh, institutional hit here for for Poland cultural and and, and intellectually. Um, and the the book, as I said, centers about how the Polish government creates this crisis around these Jews. Not in the sense of invented, but rather how certain mid-level, high-level officials focus and interpret Jewish behavior. Okay, I look into all the documents of the Ministry of Interior, of secret police, party discussions, and earth uh, the position of the machine. And um, and I argue right that they that especially after the 1967 war in the Middle East, all of these officials grow increasingly suspicious of Polish Jews. Um, And they accuse them then in March of uh, of being the force behind student unrest. There's a big wave of demonstration, uh, youth demonstrations in Poland in the spring of 68. And they accuse them of the Jews being behind this as working in the name of capitalist Israel against Polish interests. Okay, and and I argue first of all that we need to look at what happened in the war in the Middle East in, in the sixty in the Six Day War, right, the June 1967 war, um, in which during which the uh, Arab armies invade Israel, Israel um, defeats them, occupies um, the territories, and the the war is a big scene of the uh, Cold War because the Soviets are the ones providing technology and training and encouragement to Arab countries. They are steering the pot. It's a long story beyond um, the scope here. Uh, But when their, their side in the war loses, the Soviets break relations with Israel and call on all the other countries of the Warsaw Pact to follow, which they do except Romania. But what's interesting is then what happens internally in Poland. Is that these these officials that I talk about, the secret police, start to look and they immediately find right uh, uh, positive reactions by Polish Jews to the Israeli victory, right? And they immediately interpret them as um, betrayal, as uh, as as backstabbing uh, the communist regime, and they immediately see begin to see Jews more and more as uh, a, as a, a subversive element within Poland, as a dangerous element, and uh, and a, and this is what informs their view uh, when they talk about uh, Jews. Then in sixty eight, right, um, and then when there's student demonstration, that the Jews were already disloyal. They're already working against Poland. We know this from sixty seven. So let's uh, see if they're uh, doing it again. Right now, it's sixty-eight, and yes, the demonstrations prove that Jews are disloyal. The Jews are behind this. The Jews operate in the name of another nationalism um, that is um, Israel. And to your question about um, racism and race, I would say um, that uh, racism here is not. Um, in the same way that I, I say about scientists, the racism here is not extremely useful because um, what, what I'm interested in is understanding um, specific this specific instance of violence against uh, a group, right? But we can uh, always uh, generalize from this, right? And to ask about how uh, fear centered around a tiny minority. Uh, is expressed, right? goes into action and is created and then leads to their expulsion. Racism helps explain sort of why Jews, right? They're not targeted randomly. There's a long history of prejudice and there's a long history of religious discrimination, but it is not enough to explain, right? We need to think about uh, uh, why things happen at the moment that they do, right? What drives this prejudice into anti-Jewish action or racist action, right? Um, and I think also if we if we engage in a let's say a broader discussion of post-Stalinist policies and how they target various other minorities, we also uh, break out from just thinking about hatred and and towards a specific group of prejudice. But look at the way that. Communists and and or specifically the gomuka regime with Israel Gomuka, who was the head of the party from 50, late fifty six until uh, late seventy, um, right? He pursues uh, a policy uh, of of the Polish road to nationalism, in which we sort of incorporate into communism the old ways of thinking about the nation. So women, right? As uh, we know. Uh, From research on gender, women are forced out of uh, new jobs and out of new professions and and returned back to their place at home, right? This is explicit global capacity. The German minority is also at the time pushed in, pushed out. The immigration, not just Jews are pushed out in the late fifties also and in the sixties, but also the what remained of the Jewish minority in Western eh, German, sorry, German minority in Western Poland is also pushed out, right? And Jews. But it's part of broader post stalinist policies. So again, racism towards Jews or racism or, or towards or sexism don't Right, they help to explain why there's a prejudice against these people, but it doesn't help explain why things happen when and how they do. Um, so I think to to answer your question, I think if we try to to think about today as well about this, right? So we we see another instance where where conspiracy theories, which are very predominant in in my story and a crisis happening in fear of jews all come together to intensify right to intensify this moment in this case of anti-jewish sentiment anti-asian sentiment all kind of, of racist violence
1: yeah i'm really really convinced by the way you use the category of national security in your in your book i think it works both as let's say uh, an uh, a, a, an element of intellectual history and a conceptual conceit that really helps to drive and explain a lot and it links I mean the, the example you just gave thinking about the uh, second decade of the 21st century and the 1960s i want to come back to the 21st century in a little bit but the it strikes me that this post stalinist moment and i would I likewise really appreciated your use of that term throughout the story for thinking okay stalin's dead how do we conceptualize national security, especially in Poland, with the very unique situation of Gomuka, who was, of course, shamed, punished, but never really put on a sh- never put on a show trial, and uh, rehabilitated in glory uh, and allowed to come back to power. And the centrality of Gomuoka in the story, I think it depends a little bit which chapter of the book we're reading. There are moments in the book where it really felt to me like if you had, you know, the proverbial, if someone had poisoned Gomuka, then what? Right. <laughs> Would this story have actually played out the way it did? Obviously, Gomuoka was just one among many communist leaders, the Uh, Polish uh, internal affairs minister Mieczysław Moczar in some ways is really the the quote-unquote demon of the story. But Gomułka was pretty consistent in a lot of ways, and you make this very clear in his nationalism, in his reservations about Jews and their role in nation-building and communism-building in Poland. So I have to ask, is this a story about the Gomułka era and its... um, Uh, Gomuka's chickens coming to roost, so to speak?
0: Um, I think that in the sense that um, Gomuka is one representative of um, communist nationalism or national communists, then then yes. Um, In the sense that we see also parallels of this in other communist regimes um, around him. So he's not uh, unique actually in this way. But yes, this is a story of of the Gomuka era of of the of absolutely um the the Gomuka uh, chickens come to roost. And I'm glad you you brought up this the consistency because I think one of the arguments also of, of the book, um, and against the dissident narrative about sixty-eight, which has as you probably know, has dominated Scholarship on 6768, 68 um, that um, the Jewish, the anti Jewish element, um, that all the nationalist discourse was sort of a cover for power plays within the party and a cover for uh, a Gomuka's cynical use of, of popular sentiments to and anti intellectuals and to divert uh, from the demonstrations and, and from the real. Um, Sort of the real problems of Poland and to to kind of right gather for himself power and and popularity among the masses he he simply used um this anti uh uh jewish rhetoric and i would uh, and my book argues right that uh, this this narrative this this narrative fails to understand how the regime operated how what its officials believe were pursued. It uh, it looked uh, down on them, right? This narrative it it presents um, uh, the leaders of the communist party as these unintellectual, low level people, right? Uh, the people that don't we as the intelligentsia, right? This is what the dissidents think. Don't they don't deserve our time of day. And the book, exactly as, as you point out, argues against this. It says, no, we have to think about understand these people, understand uh, 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 the broader context of what they're thinking, and also to understand that, yeah, if, if Gomuka gets uh, 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 dozens of reports every day about Jewish society, they they will ring a bell for him. And yes, for Gomuka, there is a policy to pursue of national goals of shaping Poland in a certain way, uh, uh that, that has connection to pre-war nationalism, not only to pre-war communism. Right? Um so the book really tries to understand how communist nationalism nationalism operates because it's also important for understanding. Uh, contemporary politics in Eastern Europe, the contemporary memory politics in Eastern Europe, to understand the failures and problems of the transition of post-communist Poland. And I think we still see the intelligentsia in some of these places, still thinking about uh, uh, nationalist today, only in terms of these people don't deserve our time of day. But we as historians understand you have to un um, put yourself in their minds, right? You have to not sympathize, but you have to empathize and you have to understand uh, their, their point of view, right? Um, so, so that says, yes, the book is about Komuka and the point of view of the people around him, about Jews, about Poland, about the future, and also about the past.
1: I'm glad that you brought up this notion of empathizing with very unsympathetic and unsavory <laughs> characters. And I, I, I specifically, you know, one, one thing that struck me as I was reading the book, because in some sense, rivers of ink have been spilled about March 68, but not in English. And this is the first monograph in English on this topic. So uh, it was very refreshing and reassuring also to see this balance that you tow. And I'm talking to the audience here as well. One of the main reasons why I really, really, really commend this book to everyone uh, between staying close to primary sources, but not getting buried by them in the way that um, a lot of the the European historiography sometimes can get uh, and has gotten with respect to especially the communist state apparatus. The thing that I re- I found really striking is how you're able to use censor office files, IPN, right, security service files and um, a variety of different files from different organs of the Polish United Workers Party and individuals come out we really get individual stories and not just people at the top there are mid-level people as well there are a lot of intellectuals in the story uh but there are also letters written in from around the countryside so something i wanted to ask you uh if if you wanted i mean obviously i, I asked you about gamuka already we, we looked at the top it was there a source, or were there a couple sources that really still stand out in your mind as something that you were really happy to be able to wrestle through in the in the pages of your book?
0: Well, um it's a very good um, question. Admittedly, I did the research quite some time ago. Um, um, the sources there were a few a few things that were more interesting, a few things that were. Um, less interesting. Um, I, I would say that sitting in the archives, the, the the what really amazing was how the picture of what I draw in the in the book came out rather uh, uh, quickly, right? But if you're asking about the documents that stayed with me, I would say a lot of the the censorship um, um, documents of the censorship department of uh, uh, uh stayed with me uh, because in these these were the documents through which i could tease out a lot of the story of of the way uh um the memory of the holocaust became such a huge focus of 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 the anti jewish rhetoric or the anti jewish sentiment of sixty seven sixty eight from really the beginning from summer of sixty seven uh, a great deal of the rhetoric a great deal of the discussion is around um the memory of the holocaust and it really comes out in the, the the documents from the censorship as as censors have to deal uh with the the backlash of of this uh, shift in in memory politics of the holocaust that happens uh in 67 68 because at this uh as part of, or as a huge part actually, a huge part of this the anti-Jewish discourse, uh, a central part of it was that uh, Polish officials began very loudly to accuse Israel and Polish Jews of working to shift the blame for the Holocaust from German Germany, from Germans to Poles, from Germany to Poland, of pushing out the memory of the sacrifice and uh, suffering of Poles. Um, they claim the Jews had taken over the commemoration and the research of the war in Poland, and in this way have completely uh, 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 overemphasized collaboration and have forgotten the heroism and sacrifice that Poles have made. You know, arguing that in fact there was a parallel fate for Jews and Poles um, that. uh, uh, all the Jews owe their lives to Poles, all the Jews in Poland, they survived the war, owe their lives to Poles, because otherwise uh, they would not have survived. And as a result of all of uh, uh, this attack that centered around one encyclopedia entry, the censors now have to go back. And suddenly they're uh, pulling out works already published. They're censoring films that already won awards. So they they basically have to go back and sort of say, well, now we can't put this book anymore in the library and we can't show these films anymore, because uh, we have to change completely the way we talk about the Holocaust and the way we talk about World War Two. So they they you really see how uh, how this rhetoric, how this not just rhetoric, this discourse and belief, right, uh, reshape how the censorship has to do its job and has to go back. And, and recensor things.
1: I really uh, found this um, chapter, chapter three, <laughs> for those of you who will buy the book, uh, as everyone should, uh, to be I think one of the most compelling chapters I've written, I've read in any book in a long time. It, it it's funny, you know the the outcome of the story, but it still reads like a thriller to me, which is rare because it's it's in large part a work of intellectual history that chapter, but. Uh, it is, I think, worth maybe going into a little more detail for our audience also, uh, the, the, what exactly was going on in Poland in the 1960s uh, prior to 1967 with respect to historical research and historiography of the Holocaust. Because I think you make a very, very important point that there is a mythology of there having been no serious research in the Holocaust prior to the collapse of the communist system. And you, your chapter shows that that's just not true. And, and and fundamentally, that for me also was striking in the sense that Gomuka was in power at that point, right? So there was a time when Gomuka was in power when it was okay to do serious research on the mass extermination of Europe's Jewish population. And then all of a sudden, it could get you thrown out of everything
0: uh, yes, there was certainly a huge uh, shift right in in the seven sixty eight to to really erase um, what happened before. So, so to answer your question about um, the sixties first I want to say that the myth of silence uh, uh, was very was a very influential narrative but it's it disappearing in other places. other scholars have shown, what I show in my book for other places uh, in Eastern Europe. So, so this whole, uh, I think, a lot of scholars have now broken this myth that was really born in this first generation of scholars that went into Eastern Europe in the '90s and early 2000s, and who only saw the silence. But I think this has narrative has been been revised by by various. So, so. In, you know, it's it's also been shown that the Soviet that Soviet Jews talked about it among themselves and beyond that and so it's not uh, only Poland. Although Poland is unique in in how much freedom relatively there was, um, maybe not unique, but is uh, you know people were given even more freedom than other places um, to publish about the Holocaust, especially yeah, in Yiddish. Uh, because of this special relationship that the Jewish organizations had to the censorship, because the censors were also reading these works in Yiddish, so they were all part of the same social circle. Uh, So that's sort of the mundane of this. But beyond the mundane, um, yes, what I show in the book is that you see uh, after destalinization opens the door, right, to uh, rethinking and and talking about the war, right? Even Khrushchev does it in his speech. So it's not again just a book, but it opens the door and we see people walking in and we see Polish uh, Jewish scholars mostly going to the archives that they have in Poland, right? And publishing documents and publishing uh, uh, articles and really exploring uh, uh, the the killing of Jews. We see many monuments to uh, right, erected monuments, including Treblinka, that are very Jewish. And in many ways, because communists are still not exactly sure how to commemorate uh, the Polish underground, the Home Army, so they allow these these Jewish commemorations uh, that are almost, almost neutral for them at this point, right? Because they are, you know, yeah, we can talk about Jewish uh Heroism in the Warsaw Uprising, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, it's very easy. They were sort of leftist and some of them were socialists and Buddhists. We can uh, talk about that and we can do big events around that and Memory Month and we can talk about righteous among the nations, which they're very obsessed with throughout the 60s. So that's another reason why this narrative is allowed. And you can even talk a little bit about the Holocaust after 68 if you talk about the righteous. So there's also ways that Jews and non-Jewish scholars found ways to also talk about this by talking constantly about Righteous Among the Nations, right? So so people who were not part and parcel of the regime, who were not working under, you know, from an extremely nationalist position, were publishing works that then the regime exploited about Poles saving Jews, right? And this is still a theme that the contemporary regime in Poland is very obsessed with, right? That the Poles saved Jews. So in many ways, the Poles also can't talk about war, right? Not in the 60s and not now, cannot talk about World War II, cannot talk about what happened without talking about themselves uh, as righteous among the nation and without talking about the Holocaust. They can't get rid of it.
1: This for me opens the door to a question. And I, I've, my own my own field of scholarly inquiry is the Catholic Church. And I'm curious because there are a few cameos where the Catholic Church makes really important or at least noteworthy appearances. I remember particularly the line where you note that uh, Cardinal Wyszyński was praying for uh, for Israel effectively in the June 1967 war uh, and that this was quite striking to um, to the Yiddish language community, uh, in part because, well, I mean, the Catholic Church in Poland who could hardly be uh, considered apart from, from various nationalist assumptions, and that's still true. So for me, a continuity here, and I love the way that you just cast it, that you need that other in order to raise yourself up and to lift yourself up, to lionize yourself. Does that mean that you yourself have to exist? I mean, I guess, let, let, let me rephrase this. Uh, how important is religion in that oppositional process? Uh, it's something that strikes me on a number of levels, and I could go on about this, but I'm more interested in what you have to say. Gomuka obviously was not a religious man, but he had a close relationship or at least an alliance of sorts at various stages in his career with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, at least up until the millennium controversy of 1966, did better under Gomuka, certainly, than it did when Gomuka was uh, out of power. And he he, he he created a big space for religious activism how much of an expectation was there that that would also be a way of showing, well, the true poles are actually able to be active? Uh, was there a religious dimension, let's say, in, in the notion of rescue and this commemoration of rescue where it didn't really matter? Because I, part of the opposition there is saying, well, if you're not Jewish, we have to define ourselves as something. Maybe we don't go to church, but Catholic in, question, in quotation marks at least.
0: Um, so I'm not, so what you're asking is that whether,
1: um, there was a religious element to the narrative of rescue to the, yes. And I, I mean, in some sense, from what I read in your book and think about in terms of the 1960s, as well as the 2010s or 2020s, that is an underlying shared theme, uh, that the Catholic church does not mean that the church is driving it? It doesn't mean that you have a bishop spreading a certain narrative, but that there's an assumption that catholicism has to be in there somewhere because that's the signal point. And it was true even for Roman Dmowski, uh in the late 19th early 20th century that you needed something as a signifier of non-Jewishness. Right.
0: Okay. Um and I I follow your your question so um I will answer it, I can answer it in two, two parts. So I would say one is that definitely the narrative or the trope or, or of Christ among the nation nations is extremely important to the story. Okay, this idea um, that uh, the the Poland has some historical mission to save Europe. Uh, right, that so it is like Christ sacrificing itself constantly for the existence of Europe, for the existence of whatever ideals of the nation or of ideals of, of European culture um, is certainly very important in this narrative, right? We the Poles suffered more than anyone else in World War II. And also, of course, to be Christ, you need someone to sacrifice for, and so here comes the righteous among the nations, right? So in this way, it is. It does come from this uh, uh, very Christian Catholic culture of Poland right? That is steeped in this idea of sacrificing yourself for someone. So, like Christ, right, sacrificed himself so all the Jews will be saved. So do we, poles, uh, sacrifice ourselves. Uh, for right for the Jews here and for Europe and for the future and and so on and so forth. So there's certainly a strong Catholic element in, in that way. I mean, if we're asking about questions of identity, sort of, is the identity now Catholic pole is what communists are looking for. I think this is what they're grappling with, but they don't have and they don't really have a very good answer for this, because. I think that for Gomuka, though, the answer is total loyalty to the Polish nation. And he does it, and and religion is is less important than this. Yes, it's expected of, of Catholic Poles, the extreme loyalty to the nation, but it is also assumed about Catholic Poles. They don't have to prove it. But other groups have to prove this extreme loyalty to the Polish nation. And if we're looking right to the figure of Gomuka himself, everybody loves to say he had a Jewish wife, right? But she was not Jewish in the sense of the the, the of the her subjective self-definition. She was exactly the embodiment of this ex- loyalty that Gomuka expected, the extreme loyalty to the Polish nation. So it's it's that kind of definition that sort of skirts away from from the religious aspect to. Say it's it's this loyalty, it's not even ethnic, right? It's also not a racial definition to ask for Gomuka. There are others in the party that are what a good old-fashioned racists, right? But for people at Gomuka, there's a lot of, of loyalty to Poland, loyalty to the idea of Poland, loyalty to uh Polish ideology, all this stuff. And to the combination of communism and nationalism is important, uh for for Gomuka. So when when the anti campaign winds down and he gets, for various reasons, he, he, he even goes to the party in one of the meetings and he says, I don't understand. Do we need to bring our grandparents now to political meetings to prove we're not, we are ethnically false, we're not Nazis, we're not like that. So I think they're playing, not playing a game in the sense of, of, of covering up something, but I mean in the sense that they are grappling Okay, but grappling with the question of how do we define our identity if it's not exactly Catholic?
1: And this opens the door for me also to asking what it meant. And and you you you've used already the phrase you know national communism in the book. You talk about communist nationalism. Clearly, there's a, a, a unique entanglement, and you you use that word entangled. I think very importantly in your book that I'm I have to ask. Why do you think Gomuka was a communist? Is it just, or even, even more, why would you call Mozart a communist? I know in some sense, this becomes a game of semantics very easily, but I always, as an intellectual historian, you know, I, I read some of the terminology and I think to myself, ah, what would Marx or even Lenin have thought when he was reading some of this stuff <laughs> if he had been able to come back? <laughs>
0: well i think I think Skobuka was a staunch communist. I think he was a true believer of communism, absolutely believed in the planned economy. he was completely loyal to the Soviet union. I don't think he was i don't think there's any way to point to him ever not being a communist. Or, or from let's say the point that he, but maybe not a Marxist.
1: Maybe maybe not a Marxist because if state sovereignty is the altar on which, uh, literally, the ethnic minorities of Poland are being sacrificed in the late 1960s, that doesn't really sound very Marxist to me.
0: No, but it was it was his adaptation or or the adaptation of later not just his because the Asher Communism in other places. I think it's it's a combination of nationalism with with planned economy with so, with as i said so it's a combination of planned economy with um alongside uh, utter loyalty to the soviet union to the communist party of the soviet union etc cetera, etc cetera. so i i don't i think he did believe that in the communist economic system i would say and in thinking about maybe we should adapt communism to, as you say, nationalist state sovereignty. So yeah, it's, we've come away from Marx, but we're still we still think of ourselves as communists because we operate within a communist economic structure. That's what they would say.
1: Right. Well, it, it, and they probably would also say something about how World War II changed everything in some sense, right? So, I mean, obviously, obviously, we've talked about Holocaust memory and Holocaust historiography, but there's also that question of the legacy. You know, what what hap- What what happens to Nazi Germany? Well, it becomes the Federal Republic of Germany. <laughs> and I, I, the phrase, uh, this is a phrase that maybe we'll think it will strike some of our audience as nuts, but to scholars who work on Polish nationalism, uh, reading uh, uh, Zionist-American-West German. Par for the course, right? <laughs> Can you explain maybe in a few words, though, for those in yeah, the audience yes. who, who might yes, think so that's strange?
0: Absolutely. So as I said before, right, The um, one of the central arguments or the central accusation, the accusations that emerge against Jews in in um, in 67, 68 is that uh, Israel together with Polish Jews, together with uh, West Germany, right? The greatest enemy of Poland at the time, uh, and and America, right? That's giving money to everyone. uh, That Israel conspired with West Germany and the Polish Jews and America to shift the blame for the Holocaust from Germany to Poland right so these people uh, around Poland are working in the name of these uh, uh, uh western or westerns in the sense of the Cold War western western interests capitalist interests um, to blame Poland for what happened uh to the Jews during the war uh, they, they, pub- they they so popularized this belief that persists to to contemporary Poland that um the reparations agreement, right? The West Germany had paid Israel reparations for the Holocaust. Long story in and of itself, but uh, uh, so they they claimed that these reparations were a payment, not just reparations for the Holocaust, but payment to the Jews to say that the Poles did it. Um, and, and as I said, the, this still persists, the, this idea uh, um when you talk, when you listen to discourse of various, uh, right wing figures today, in Poland, you can still echo hear echoes of this, and and not just echoes. They really use uh, the exactly the same discourse uh, in contemporary Poland to talk about, um, uh, um <clears throat> sorry, to talk about. The Holocaust to talk about, uh, right? They all they today too talk about Jewish conspiracies against Poland, Jewish conspiracies to distort the memory of the Holocaust. All of these themes are now uh, coming back, and or have been coming back for quite a while now, in contemporary Poland, in, in the in the Kaczyński Poland, and we see that the le- contemporary legislation about politics. Eh, Memory, uh, contemporary memory politics right they're all dealing with the same issues the collaboration uh, righteous among the nations the parallel fate um, all of the issues the communists were obsessed with uh, the Jewish Museum in 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 Poland Poland in Warsaw had a, a big uh, um, uh, it's the exhibit for Exhibition for the anniversary of sixty eight two thousand and eighteen, where they had a board that showed the parallel they showed that it was the same uh, discourse, right literally the same rhetoric, not even similar, often the same uh, the same words okay so we are talking about a lot of continuities in this uh, thinking, so yes, there's the specific situation of communist nationalism. But really, the discourse of communist nationalism has really persisted, right? So we uh, and is really uh, so, so. we need to think more about continuities and less about discontinuities between the communist period and today.
1: I'm glad you're using that word continuities. I was struck at the very beginning of your introduction, right? you, you bring in uh, the statements by Polish, still Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, uh, still today Prime Minister, that his statement fulfills the aspirations, I'm quoting, of the very politicians who 50 years earlier in 1968 succeeded in driving 15,000 Jews out of Poland. End quote. So that's a strong attribution there. And in some sense, what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, you partly answered it, but I I would love for you to put even a finer point on it. If you feel like um, Morawiecki, Jarosław Kaczyński, obviously without commenting on them personally, but the camp that they represent or of which they're a part, do you think they've actually drawn consciously on the rhetoric or assumptions of communist nationalism or do you think it's a marriage of convenience i think that's maybe one of the trickier aspects for understanding this question of continuity not least because you know the 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 late president lech kaczynski used different rhetoric and you point this out in the conclusions to your book that there's a big difference just a decade made a difference in terms of how one political party was talking. But I'm curious how you th- what, what, what you think about it.
0: Um, I think that they draw on it in the sense, first of all, the, I think if we took to the older generation of peace, Kaczynski, and perhaps not so much the younger generation, right, he absolutely remembers this, right? This is not, he was a young he was, I think, high school, not uh, not uh, not a university student yet. But the person like Kaczyński has absolutely grown up in this uh, discourse. He absolutely remembers it, and uh, and it wouldn't be a wild assumption to say that he draws on it. And I think others so even more. The younger generation, perhaps, doesn't draw it in the sense that they remember it from '68, but in the sense that this was. What is taught in school, not the Jewish conspiracy part, but you know that Poles are all righteous among the nations, that Poles are all sacrificed, that the West is neglecting to remember us, that the West is neglecting uh, to understand us, and I think that this is still. Um, how these, these people uh, are think, right? They still uh, are very interested, like the, their peers in 68, in what the world thinks about them and the, the good name of Poland um, and improving that we're actually not horrible anti-Semites when, right? So, so they're always trying to persuade you that they're not anti-Semites, they're not racist, they didn't kill Jews. Um, and I think they do draw on this um, discourse because this is the discourse that uh, they were surrounded with, right? That they and, and they are continuing in the same way that um, these people from 68 are drawing on uh, the longer history of rhetoric right and they are, are sounding the echoes of dmowski right in many ways so they are echoing the that they are echoing dmowski and the people today are echoing them but they're all part of the longer story that you referred to at the beginning of our conversation the longer story of polish nationalism and the way he talks and thinks about Jews through conspiracy theories so it's not and and not so today, of course, it's all linked to the memory of the Holocaust because we are post forty-five. But the way we think about Jews and Jewish citizens is being part or not part of us, and of Jews conspiring against us. All of this are echoes to the past. So in this way, they're all of the right. I, as um, I think I read, uh, as Brian Porter recently, I think somewhere said, you know, gomuka is is we now understand how much Gomuka was echoing. Right. So we now understand that. So we also understand that these people, right, they don't only echo Domovsky consciously, which they they would argue they do. They also echo uh, uh, communist nationalists who are part of the same tradition in the
1: end. It strikes me that in that context. Okay, so obviously this, the creation of the state of Israel does change the calculations after World War II. And that's something with, with, which, uh, with whose consequences the Polish government of the 21st century, the Polish governments of the 21st century of today are living. But in your story, the actual state of Israel, granted, there was a June 1967 war. But a, apart from that, it's a red herring in the story. Uh, or or would you say that it actually does matter what comes from Israel is it more in the minds of of the uh, the Polish nationalists or is there an actual let's say response to objective reality if I can put it that way um,
0: so this is a, a, a somewhat tricky question so uh, First, I want to say a couple of words about sort of this idea of anti-Zionism of the 60s. And just to clarify that the anti-Zionism of the 60s is very different than what the minefield that it is today. And first of because, first of all, many of the or some of the Polish Jews I write about and that left Poland in 68 were themselves would have self-defined themselves as anti-Zionist or I would say non-Zionist, which is a position that sort of has disappeared uh, from the discourse. But there were people who did not think that Zionism, that Israel is the solution to the problems of Jews. I'm talking about these are Jews, right, that don't think that Israel is didn't think that Israel is the solution. They rejected nationalism in many forms. And 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 a lot of these Jews were harking back to the days of pre-war uh, uh, arguments about um, Zionism. So so there, they were non Zionists or anti Zionists, right? They were there at different times. A person like Mark Edelman, the hero of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, could be an anti or non Zionist. Someone who did not see any connection between himself and the state, or almost any connection, you should never say any, but almost any connection between himself and the state, right? He was not. Uh, and he was a hero, right? How would he be thought of today? I don't know, right? So it's a different time. And also you talk about establishment of Israel, but also we have to think about position of Israel before and after um, the Six-Day War, right? So, so also that has changed, okay? Um, but going back to your question, how much is Israel and the existence of Israel important to the story? It is important because first of all, the creation of Israel changes, shifts, The situation of the Jewish minority for being just only diasporic and in this way a little weird um, into uh, 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 it's, it's still weird because now they're both diasporic and there is a nation that or a state that claims their loyalty. Yeah, because Israel also claims the loyalty of Jews, so it is a more and then and then we see and and there are there is some work also on this very interesting work. We see Jew, Polish Jews sort of stuck in this relationship between Israel, Poland, and Polish Jews, who often who who, as I said at the beginning, beginning right uh, often or. Had a marriage of hybrid identities of seeing themselves both as poles, and Jews, cultural Jews, cultural poles. They lived in all kinds of hybridities, and these hybridities became very impossible the more uh, the nation state affirmed itself, and it, they, it became impossible for them in Poland, and they are expelled. And yes, the fact that Israel claims the loyalty does play a part in that, um, and they're also. Treated like this in Israel. Some of them went to Israel, many did, but also the state of Israel, right? Of, not official the state of Israel uh, has a sort of free press at the time, right? So the Israeli press also attacks them and they're like, what were you doing there all this time? Why aren't you, why weren't you even in Israel until now, right? Now, it also rejects any possibility of any hybrid identity that doesn't commit only to one place and one uh, uh, nation.
1: It strikes me uh, that Zygmunt Bauman is an interesting case. You bring him up at the start of your book. He doesn't get a ton of attention, but I wanted to ask, particularly because a couple of biographies have been published about him recently, including I think what's going to be a fairly influential one in English by Isabella Wagner, Uh, is it fair to think of Bauman as an example, uh, or I mean, obviously an example—that's a very broad way of putting it—but but as someone who exemplifies the uh, the loss or the fate, uh, the results of the campaign that you're uh, describing in the book, in a, in an in an obvious sense, sure. But I'm curious if you feel like his story maybe gets too much attention or actually is exactly the right kind of story to look to?
0: Um, that's a, a excellent question. Um, Bauman is an even more complicated story than some of the other characters in, in the book. But I would say, yes, it is a loss. And I think that actually, if you look to, to the way his wife, Yanina Bauman, um, writes about their experiences in 67, 68, in her, in her work, beautiful book, that I don't know how many people have read, A Dream of Belonging. Uh, she writes very beautifully exactly about that, about how she lost any place to belong. And that's why they wind up uh, in living in, in a, a sort of an exiled life um, in England. And sort of, they don't belong in Poland anymore. They don't belong in Israel. Uh, because he had a state of life in in Israel, and they find themselves living in needs and and spending the rest of their lives uh, there in needs. And Bauman gradually becoming a, a prominent uh, intellectual in Europe. Uh, but I think it's not just the people uh, uh, like Bauman. I think that even. Yes, I think there's it's an interesting character to think about, and I think his identity issues are interesting. But I would even argue that the identity issues of the people, like uh, Baumann's, I I don't know what. How do you define this family relationship? But the husband of his, uh, the father of the husband of his daughter. uh, uh, Spard, David Sfard, who was uh, uh, very well, David Sfard was very well known, well very well known in the small circle of Yiddish uh, uh, writers, and Yiddish activists. But people like uh, Sfard, like my grandfather, and people like that, who straddled really the two worlds of of being very sort of in the Yiddish and in the, that cultural world of Yiddish and in the in a little bit uh, preserving bundist dreams right um these were this is really what i feel is lost this sort of diasporic identity this very and 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 this is something very specifically jewish here right this diasporic yiddish speaking identity that doesn't necessarily commit as i say to one Nation, not to a state, which is different, but doesn't commit necessarily to one nation and to one identity, but sees itself in various places. So I think, in that sense, uh, uh, there is a sense of loss here of of a world lost of of this people who who who, as I say in the, I quote, I think I quote Leon and, and David's... David son Leon You know, we have, we, I was both a Pole and a Jew, both at the same time. And that's, I think, uh, what we've lost.
1: This is, I think, a wonderful place to uh, to pause or, or leave on the question of, of uh, your powerful book. I always close interviews by asking what you're working on now.
0: So, um, thank you. Um, What I'm working on now is actually completely uh, moves away from Jews. It moves away uh, from all of these uh, questions, actually, of nationalism. But it does stay in the region. It stays in communism, in the transition from communism. And I actually am uh, working on a project that explores food history. Uh, Because when we look to our reality, what we're living now, Climate crisis, right? COVID, it is all we know linked to food systems. It's linked to the way, uh, 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 right? We grow food, we process food, we eat food. It has all brought what we're living in now. And, uh, you know, as as a historian, and I feel like historians and certainly historians of Eastern Europe are coming late to this game, but we as historians, I think, need to think more about our environment and more about our relationship with the land, the animals, the insects, everything, right? So, and I think communism affords us a very good opportunity to look at a whole food system because the regime controlled everything. So I'm going to examine, you know, what food was grown, what food was sold, where, how, how was the processed, what is served in the government-run cafeterias, restaurants, what people cook at home, what, uh, cookbooks are being published you know i want to understand what's being sold in- on
1: the roadside
0: exactly i want to sort of in the way that i do do in this book so sort of i want to understand how the decisions are made on on food right what policies are pursued how they're shaped um, so and 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 how they're adopted on the ground right from we have to think about um hunger at the beginning, right? People don't have anything to eat, to let's think about what's healthy to eat, to let's compete with consumerism, to all the way to today, to going back to um, sort of thinking about organic and local and so on. But I think what's also interesting, what is interesting to me is that it continues, it does continue other themes in my work because I, I want to show sort of the pan-European, beyond sort of a specific story, the pan-European drive here, right, of post-45 food industrialization, of reconceptualizing, very influenced by the American model on both sides of the so-called Iron Curtain, right? So if France is industrializing in a huge way, it's agriculture. And I want to see how it's done in the Eastern European context, right? Is it successful? How much the consolidation of farms, all of this, Um, Stuff And, of course, again, in this way linked to my current work, I want to talk about how the failures and problems of food policies are linked to the rise of right-wing politics in Europe today, particularly in rural regions. So, again, I want to talk about all those people that the dissidents of 68 didn't want to talk about, the people, you know, in the countryside. In the farmers, the peasants, how their lives are shaped and changed and, and why and how this leads to them to to today's political stances. I think it's very, very important. Um, there's a lot of work for from people like Raj Patel, great work from the global south about how about the global south, about you know, farmers in and Raj Patel writes not only about the, the global south, right about how uh, the whole food system completely changes and in many places destroys the lives of farmers, right? In India, in Mexico, in America, but also in, in Europe. So I want to think about the lives of these people in the historical context. And I think we can benefit a lot from understanding uh, of this story of, from the story of food to understand how we came to where we are both environmentally and politically and how maybe, maybe we can find a way forward.
1: Well, that's an incredibly powerful project. And just the sheer number of different methodologies I see playing in there. I'm guessing this is going to take a while to write the book.
0: Well, yes, as long as I can't travel, it's also a problem. Well, that's fair.
1: I mean, who knows what we're all doing in terms of archives right now. (laughs) But no, no, I mean, I'm super excited. I'm sorry. I was just sitting thinking to myself about all kinds of different vectors there, whether it's the... uh, the, uh, the, Peguieri, right? the the right the 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 role played in 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 uh, let's say the growth of right wing populism in Poland by the collapse of the the alternative to collectivization and there's. So many layers there, and I mean, the the, the work of Elizabeth Dunn, I mean, there isn't a lot, but there's been some interesting anthropology, which I think... Yes,
0: a lot of interesting anthropology, I agree, yes.
1: Yeah, so... A lot
0: of, actually, uh, women anthropologists uh, writing in Poland, yes. Very, very interesting stuff, absolutely, yes.
1: Exactly. Well, I can't wait to read whatever you produce. Uh, in the meantime, now that your uh, expulsion of Jews from Communist Poland is out with Indiana University Press, I want to say again that uh, it's been a pleasure to promote that book and to learn more about it and to convince hopefully many in the audience to read uh, this very important piece of scholarship. My guest today has been Dr. Anat Plocker. Thank you so much once again for joining me and for speaking with us.
0: Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure. Have a good afternoon. Thank Thank you.
0: You too. Thank you.